0: If aviation were a country, then the total emissions of aviation in in a year would be larger than the emissions of the entire German economy.
1: In commercially, it is jet fuel. So it isn't different. The How we made it's different. Its carbon footprint's definitely different. It doesn't have particulates. That's different. But in fact, commercially, it is jet fuel. If you can make beer from it, I can
2: make jet fuel from it. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Jim Greenwood, and you're listening to I Am Bio. Ladies and gentlemen, the main cabin door is about to be closed. This is Jetstar Flight
1: 1901 Keyes. Would the cabin crew please
0: prepare the cabin
2: for departure? So today we're going to talk about the price we pay to fly. Airline tickets may be cheaper than ever, but the carbon bill coming due could break us all. So climate change is, in my mind, a crisis. I think it's the greatest crisis that mankind faces right now. If we're going to protect our planet, if we're going to leave it as a place of joy and wonder for our children and their children, we're going to have to do um, some radical things about climate change. One of them is we have to decarbonize our transportation system. Can we do that? We're going to talk about just one aspect of it, and that's aviation. Uh, Believe it or not, about 100,000 airplanes take off and land uh, every day in the world. Uh, At any given moment, there are between 8,000 and 20,000 flights in the air. Now, some people think that what we need to do about that is, is flight shaming. And in fact, it's the amount of pollution that comes from air flight is would be equal to the seventh largest country in the world in terms of emissions. But we're probably not going to succeed at just discouraging people from flying in vast numbers. Air travel has become less and less expensive. More and more people are are flying and there's a good thing about that. People get to see the world and visit loved ones and conduct business and and pleasure around the planet. Soon you will hear my conversation with a biotech CEO who has invented a new way to fuse biotechnology and chemistry to create, get this, actual gasoline with no carbon footprint. His product is a fascinating and sustainable alternative to traditional jet fuel. Its adoption could end dirty flying. And dirty flying, whether you realize it or not, is a big problem that's only getting bigger. I talked to an environmental litigator in Berkeley, California, who approves of flight shame. She's an expert in airline emissions, and she shares my admiration for a brave Swedish schoolgirl whose voice has awakened the world to a planetary emergency. The lack of awareness is the same everywhere. Not the least amongst those elected to lead us. Our leaders are not behaving as if we were in an emergency.
1: Cabin crew, prepare for
2: takeoff. So our first guest is Vera Pardee. She's outside counsel to the Sierra Club and has represented nonprofits and climate change litigation for more than a decade. Before that, she was an executive at a biotech company for seven years. So welcome to I Am Bio.
0: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
2: Unless one's head is buried in the sand, uh, you have to know that climate change is causing problems like sea level rise, extreme weather events, flooding, displacement, and species extinction. The phenomenon of flight shaming has helped start a global conversation about airline travel and climate change. So, Vera, can you talk about this sociological trend and the underlying problem it seeks to solve?
0: It's actually pretty amazing that we are at this point, and we have to thank Greta Thunberg for this. And her young voice has had quite an impact, making us aware of that issue. People perceive what she says a little bit like shaming, but I really wouldn't put it that way. I think she has this amazing ability to speak directly to this problem. She's unflinching. She just simply will not back off. And that has an impact that we haven't really seen, particularly not from from a young person. Now for air traffic and our desire to fly all the time. Uh, the impact is particularly uh, aggravating and shocking because we do not have the technology to avoid greenhouse gases from that mode of transportation. So confronted with Greta, it's no wonder that we step back and say, hey, is that next flight really necessary? So I wouldn't call it shaming. I would call it a very reasonable and, in fact, extremely necessary response to the problem we face while our individual behavior and changes to that are important, we are just not going to make the difference we need to make unless we have broad, well-designed, well-executed governmental policies that get at the root of the problem.
2: So emissions from jet fuel account for more than 2% of all CO2 emissions. But that number is even higher if you look at total aviation impacts. The numbers paint a pretty stark picture. Can you break them down for us?
0: If aviation were a country, then the total emissions of aviation in in a year would be larger than the emissions of the entire German economy and uh, would be you know seventh largest country with the largest emissions uh, in the world that 's a lot of emissions, and you 're right uh, emissions are about two point four percent now. Um, The science is a little bit unclear, but it is possible that the warming impact of these greenhouse gases from air traffic could be higher. That's because the greenhouse gases get released way high up there in the stratosphere. They may have a very different warming impact. Then we also have contrails. So it's possible that we're looking at... Uh, warming that might approach even four to five percent, but whether that is the science will bear that out or not, surely the number is 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 way too high and what 's really concerning is that the emissions are projected to triple by two thousand and fifty. The reasons for that are also pretty clear to understand: Number one, we all travel more. Vacation travel is just, ah, where are we flying today? You know, you're in Europe and you're in London and you hop down to Spain for a weekend and it's because it's so darn cheap. That's one of the reasons. So more and more and more uh, flights. In addition to that, the not yet fully developed countries are catching up with us. And we have more air freight as well to take care of. So the startling part is that aviation is projected to be one of the, if not the most, uh, uh, the source that is most increasing in emissions over time. And you, you you just don't want that. You just don't want to be part of that. Globally, if we are on uh, this track and if we continue without any good solutions, uh, the global percentage of greenhouse gases from air traffic could be 15% by 2050.
2: We you know, that makes me recall my college days back in the late 60s, early 70s, studying environmental science and learning about the, the need to internalize environmental costs. And um, uh, if you think about how inexpensive flying can be now, uh, at the same time, in the, in the same paragraph, you... Talked about the, the the huge impacts on the environment. If the the cost of flying included the cost of remediating those those environmental damages, um, everything would change because all of a sudden the, the the price would go up and people would be making more thoughtful decisions about when when and where and how far they need to fly.
0: I couldn't agree more. It's it's exactly right. You know, you and I might not afford it. Um, or we could um, really narrow it down to those instances where it's just unavoidable work is a is the main reason why people fly, and it's also interesting to know that the frequent flyers themselves add a whole lot of more miles than than the average person. but even for work, there are so many alternatives now that people can choose live meetings and uh, technology. You can't always do that, but you sure can think twice about whether that next flight is necessary.
1: We just use fossil-based stuff every single day. Each one of us does. Don't think twice about it. But we don't litter. We don't litter. We don't just throw stuff on the ground. We've been trained that that's not okay. How about straws? Oh, okay. Do straws? Do I really think it makes a difference in the environment? Not really. Not you know, in the grand scheme, you know. But you know, people are trying to do something. Been trained not to use straws. It's like, how about this? How about we deal with the things that are big? Let's stop using the dang fossil fuels and do and hold companies accountable at the marketplace. Our guest
2: today is Pat Gruber. He's had a long career in using renewable and sustainable materials and fuels and creating them. If we're going to do something serious about climate change, one of the things we're going to have to do is to decarbonize transportation. We can no longer afford to move ourselves using cars and trucks and buses and trains and airplanes using fossil fuels. What Pat has done is figured out how to use everything from agricultural waste to discardable feedstocks to make gasoline um, from plant material. And he's even tackled the delicate subject of cow flatulence. And I know you're going to want to hear all about that today. He's been quite successful. He's uh, built a contract with Delta Airlines to make 10 million gallons of jet fuel from plant material. He's using non-fossil fuel gasoline for race cars. And in fact, he's using renewable energy to power the plants that are turning these plant materials into fuel. So Pat has a vision, and I share this vision, that we will be able to, in the very near future, travel around our communities and around the country and around the world in a way that's no longer adding to the greenhouse gas problem and the climate change problem that we've been facing for decades. So he has a vision of hope. Let's hear all about it
1: electronic equipment must now be switched off. Mobile phones with flight mode capability must be switched to flight mode now before turning on. We're very
2: fortunate to have with us uh, as my guest today, Pat Gruber. He's the CEO of a company called Jivo based in the state of Colorado. His company is all about making biofuels, uh, particularly for the airline industry. So welcome. Thanks for being with us today.
1: Ah, It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
2: If you uh, listen to Greta Thunberg, who I admire, if you listen to people who are um, advancing the uh, New Green Deal, um, part of that is um, pretty radical in that they're saying they're flight shaming. They say we we just stop flying. You know, it's not really realistic to think that people are just going to you know stop flying uh, anytime soon and uh, take alternative means of transportation. Uh, to cross the the continents and the oceans, right?
1: Yeah. So I I think that on the plus side, it raises awareness, uh, makes people think twice about what do they really need to do and why. It's a freedom of movement issue. So the thing about flying and what it's done really is allowing people to be more mobile. There's a right in that, um, a right to movement thing. And so by saying you can't fly, who are you denying really? That's not, so there's almost, a. it's almost, in the, I don't know, what. it's not a human right, but it's, you know what I mean? It's like kind of a, we're trying to restrict people on how they move, really? Does that sound like freedom? It doesn't sound like freedom to me.
2: So uh, give me the 32nd autobiography of Pat Gruber.
1: All right. So I grew up in an era, I'm old, I got to admit, and uh, when I had this really cool Dodge Challenger, it was 1970 RT with a 440 Magnum, it was a cool car. Well, you know what? Do you remember back in the 70s when oil spiked in price and gasoline went from 25 cents to a buck. I had to sell my car because I couldn't afford to drive it anymore. And it kind of stuck with me and irritated the heck out of me. And so as I found out that I was good at chemistry uh, in in college, and I was starting to think about this kind of stuff, biotechnology was new at the time, but I went to a program at the University of Minnesota that emphasized both biotechnology and organic chemistry. And so I'm one of the early people who was actually trained in both And uh, I didn't know it at the time, of course, because I'm just going along with something. I'm like, I want to, I can see how to replace uh, fossil-based products with renewables if we use biotechnology plus chemistry. And, you know, I'm one of these fortunate people who's been doing it ever since.
2: Let's start with the problem that we're trying to address, which is really climate change. And from your perspective, how bad is it?
1: Well, we're going to new levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere every single day. And what people don't realize, and we try to work with them, is that every time we burn a fossil-based carbon fuel, gasoline, diesel fuel, and jet fuel, that puts carbon in the atmosphere that wouldn't otherwise be there but for our activities. So anyone who says that, that it isn't increasing is simply denying the actual fact of you burn a fuel, it makes carbon dioxide that wouldn't have been there except for that. And it's ancient carbon that's being put in the atmosphere. Now, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere already but it's increasing to levels and we're going places we've never been before and that's the scary part I've been saying for about
2: 25 years now to people who say well we're not really sure that climate change is uh, that much caused by human behavior I say well insofar as what is at stake is the inhabitability of the planet should we not err on the side of caution
1: and uh, and try to decarbonize our economy it's interesting to note that electricity is the biggest source single source Electricity generation is the single biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions. So we got work to do to green, green up yeah. electricity generation and all the rest. And uh, liquid transportation fuels—that's something we can do something about.
2: Right. So you're focused on that, you know, liquid transportation fuels, and particularly um, looking at the at at the airlines. Um, we can electrify our cars, but we
1: can't exactly uh, electrify our our airplanes. It's not like we're going to make battery powered jet airliners that hold lots of people anytime soon. That technology just simply doesn't exist. The amount of fuel that's used incrementally each year is about 3 billion gallons due to the growth that people throughout the world are finding the means that to fly that they didn't have before. So it's a growth industry on a fundamental level. So three billion gallons a year, the airline industry has promised to hold flat its emissions from 2020 onward. So they have to offset that 3 billion gallons. How are they going to do that? Well, they've been working on it, on making better planes or going from three engines to two engines and planes and changing routes and taxing and all those kind of things. That helps, but they're going to have to have liquid biofuels to make that happen. And that's where we come in. So
2: let's talk about how biotechnology fits into all of this. Right now, essentially, uh, oil is Petroleum is pumped out of the ground and is converted. Some of it's converted to jet fuel, and it burns dirty, and it and it makes a has particulate matter and, and a lot of greenhouse gases, as we've been discussing. What's the What's the biotech alternative that Jiva's and you are looking at?
1: Yeah. So when we look at the problem overall, and remember, we're we're like these looking at we're, we're kind of really practical people. I want stuff to work. Well, you know what? We're not going to change jet engines. We're not going to redesign airliners. If I want this to be done in anyone's lifetime, it, might, it has to be something that just can drop in. So we know what the outcome looks like. It's kerosene. It's a 12-carbon molecule, it's a hydrocarbon. I know its characteristics. So we asked ourselves, how can we design a system that uses renewable resource-based carbon and manufacture that product? Well, it's, we had a simple idea. We could take carbohydrates and do a fermentation to make not ethanol, Ethanol has two carbons, but instead do a fermentation that produces an alcohol called isobutanol. Isobutanol has four carbons, four. I take that isobutanol, it's four carbons, and I connect three of them together with chemical techniques that are well known in the industry. Then it's 12 carbons long. Jet fuel is 12 carbons long. So we're synthetically producing, building up from building blocks, jet fuel. And that is a different game to play. So it is jet fuel. It just happens to be renewable resource-based carbon along the way. And biotechnology enabled it because of that fermentation uh, started off as a yeast. We, we The fermentation uses a yeast that would normally produce ethanol and a tiny little bit of isobutanol. Isobutanol is the flavor of a scotch whiskey, like, say, an Islay scotch whiskey. You'd recognize it immediately. You think we're a bunch of drunks in our labs and plant because it smells like scotch. What we've done is genetically engineered that yeast to eat carbohydrates, stop producing ethanol, and instead produce the four carbon molecule isobutanol. That's the biotech, it was actually a massive amount of work, 260 some changes to that organism, massive amount to make it work at in industrial scale. When you're not using any kind of fossil fuel, you're using
2: plant material, mm-hmm. right? And what, what, what varieties of plant material can you use?
1: The way to think of us is that we use carbohydrates, and I actually don't care where the carbohydrates come from. I care that they're sustainably produced, economical, and in an abundance where I can use them at an economical scale for my plant. So and if you can make beer from it, I can make jet fuel from it. And we have uh, – cornstarch in the U.S. works great, the way that that works. And where would you get that cornstarch?
2: Is that a byproduct of, of- – Growing corn, or is it you 're
1: using the kernel of the corn as well our plant we have a plant in Laverne, Minnesota, and at that plant we take the corn and we grind it, and we fractionate the corn we capture the protein, so one hundred percent of the nutritional value of the corn is captured and sold into the food chain. In fact, we would produce about ten pounds of protein per gallon of jet fuel, which is enormous when people think about food versus fuel. How about this we got a we 're a real live example of food plus fuel yeah let 's stop
2: there for a second because there, there has been this long standing uh, debate about uh, so-called uh, feed versus fuel, right? And people say, well, it's a shame to take that corn, which can be fed to people, can be turned into various – directly into into food for people. It can be turned into – can be fed to livestock and, and, and pigs and chickens and so forth. Um, and when we use c- corn to make uh, fuel, um, we're raising the cost of, of food. Um, But what you just said is that you fractionate that. So so it's not as if it all goes
1: into making fuel. Some of it is then, that protein is then used for livestock, correct? Exactly so. And in that business system, actually, it's a value-added feed product too. So think about what happens to it. We're stripping out the carbohydrate. If I were to feed that simple sugar carbohydrate, it's it's like a starch, right? And I feed that to cows, what do they do with it in their ruminant stomachs? They just turn it into methane gas. Well, everyone's complaining about the greenhouse gas footprint from cows. Well, how about we feed them less simple sugars? We even know that we don't even do that to our children. We are not supposed to feed them simple sugars. It's not good for their gut. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. Guys like us come along and we're stripping out the protein first, stripping out the carbohydrate, separating the carbohydrates. We're taking the carbohydrate portion on and using that to make the fuels, the protein part with all the nutritional value goes into the food chain.
2: Okay. So corn. Um, You said you don't care where you get your carbohydrates no. from. So We've done uh, what about a place like India where they don't yeah. grow a lot of corn?
1: Yeah, so that's interesting. So in I think the practical things in India are gonna start off to be molasses, could be sugar, but I think molasses it'll start with, but then it's rice straw and things like that, or bagasse. Uh and so that's, 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 rice that's, straw. What is rice straw? Rice straw is seems the, obvious, but yeah, tell it, me. It is. It's the straw from after you know, that's left over after you, you know, grow rice and harvest it, you gotta cut the straw away. And right now India just burns it.
2: So when and, and when they burn it, they just the farmers, individual farmers
1: burn it in the open field. It's yeah, if anyone's been to Delhi and when they're burning, you know, straw, man, you can't see ten feet hardly. Mm-hmm. And so it's a problem. Praj, one of our partners, has a technology that can convert rice straw into simple sugars that guys like us can ferment. And so we have a project working with them. I think that has great potential. So straw is fair game for us. We were the first to make jet fuel from wood. And Alaska Airlines flew that a couple years ago with us. And, and that wood is a byproduct of sawmills and stuff no, that would otherwise... We actually use slash. The stuff oh. that's, you know that people are talking about contributes to the forest fires in California. Right. It was that was the stuff that we used. So they go to, to uh, harvest trees and all of the smaller branches that are cut off and left in that, piles. And the brush underneath and the undergrowth and stuff like that. That's what we use specifically. Now, we did it to prove a point because one of the things that happens in our industry, we're talking about making direct drop-in illegally... In the in the commercial in commercially, it is jet fuel, so it isn't different. The how we made it's different. Its carbon footprint's definitely different. It doesn't have particulates. That's different. But in fact, commercially, it is jet fuel. It is a complete drop-in throughout all the whole business systems through the pipelines, tanks, pumps, and course jets themselves, all types. And we've been tested on everything, and 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 people been flying it with all types, helicopters too. So it's a the game is how do you – we, how, it's about setting up the economical business systems and making sure that their sustainability is measured properly and we're accounting for it properly and it's economical and things like that. Well, we have to prove to people all the time, particularly here in D.C., they don't know that these things can be done. People are just oblivious. They don't know it because this is the – that's not what's talked about. They think if there's only answer is, like you even mentioned it, EV, well, we make gasoline too. you know. It's like, well, no, they're really – these technologies exist to make standard hydrocarbons that are direct substitute drop-ins. In fact, legally, they would be gasoline, jet fuel, and all the, and diesel fuel. And uh, that changes the game because of the carbon footprint reduction is so massive. We can get to net zero across the life cycle, eliminate the footprint completely. That is technically possible. And it's in our vision and what we want to achieve over time. So let's go um, back a, a little bit. We talked about the, the the
2: feeds, the various feedstocks. We talked about the products that you can make and their use. But let's get back to the biotechnology because you talked about I'll delve into that a little bit more. You talked about the yeast and tweaking it two hundred and sixty or seventy times. Um, you know what exactly are we talk about when we're tweaking it. So you're starting out with a, a yeast that occurs in nature. And then the biotechnology comes in. And what exactly are you doing when you tweak it all these times to get it the way to do what you want it
1: to do? Sure. When I worked at Cargill, we did a project where we made a uh, new plastic material that was called PLA. The thing that we learned along the way is that we learned how to modify yeast with genetic engineering to make something other than ethanol.
2: Okay. So let's slow down. Yeast has DNA. Yep. Like every living thing does. Yep. And it has genes. Yep. And those genes are made of nucleotides. Uh, and you're when you're when you're bioengineering the yeast, you are rewriting the DNA of the yeast.
1: We are, but but here's what we're doing. We're we're starting off with we're doing something that's very different than what almost anyone in the world has done. We learned it at Cargill when we did our lactic acid. And that is you start off with something that you know works at full scale commercially. The That bug, that yeast, bug it means yeast, that, that bug is uh, like ethanol red. It's one of the ones that's used for brewing industry all over the world, and it works at these giant scale fermentations. We're not doing some laboratory experiment. I need to work like in million liter Ten million liter for that kind of scale.
2: And what we've been doing since uh, the the dawn of the industrial age, mining coal, pumping oil, uh, and, and then natural gas uh, from beneath the, the surface, is we've been bringing up old fossilized plant material that's turned into these fossil fuels, and then um, burning it, and that releasing all of that carbon dioxide and, and carbon into the atmosphere combines with oxygen. What you're talking about is essentially to the extent we can and we need to, let's leave the carbon that's beneath the surface of the ground. Let's take what's already in the, the environment and utilize it and eventually um, reduce the amount of carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere.
1: Yeah, so we're trying to get people to think differently about what this business system looks like. Think about it. My raw material is actually carbon dioxide in the atmosphere going through photosynthesis into plant matter to make sugars, and I'm taking the sugars and making a jet fuel. It burns and makes CO2. That's a closed loop. If I add to it renewable energy uh, and reduce the carbon footprint from my energy sources, I can get to negative greenhouse gas emissions. I'm going to add one more thing, though. I think differently about agriculture. We, my business thinks differently about agriculture and forestry uh, than a lot of companies, because I look at it and recognize that as precision agriculture gets more widespread, whether you you actually are writing a prescription for the amount of nitrogen that gets added for every meter of land. Or we see conservation tillage where you have strip tilling or no-till drills and things like that. So you don't just turn up all the soil and lose the carbon. You can actually build up soil carbon. And we've been studying this for quite a few years now and see that it is possible to build up soil carbon as we grow things. And so this idea that agriculture is somehow the enemy of the environment, that's not even true. Uh, that's, that's like an old, old, old paradigm. Let's use the agriculture to build soil carbon. And when you do that, you can actually get to negative greenhouse gas emissions. That's an interesting concept, negative. That actually means that through that life cycle, It's causing carbon to be taken out of the atmosphere and put directly into the soil to put more into the ground and still generate the proteins we need and the raw materials to make our liquid fuels. So if we
2: envision a time in the future, hopefully not in the too distant future before it's too late, where all liquid fuels used for transportation are made this way. Um, would a critic say, yeah, but you're going to be digging up fossil fuels to run those plants, aren't you, to power those plants? Because you need energy to f- make your machinery work, et cetera.
1: Yeah, that's one of the issues. Yeah, so actually, if we were to just do a straight up, what's my footprint? Right, you know, I was just using conventional um, electricity and conventional natural gas. That is, That electricity and natural gas is the source of my footprint. We'd still see a significant reduction in carbon. We're adding wind towers, and so to get off the grid, we're doing it to show people what's possible. We're using, we're setting up anaerobic digestion of manure to put biogas to my boilers to get rid of the fossil footprint for the, for the heat of my plant. And that combined with how things are grown in agriculture you get to very negative numbers potentially, but it's real, we're doing it to prove a point of what's possible in, in these systems. You wouldn't have to do it all the way all the time, but it, it really is possible to do if we think differently about it. The thing that we know how to do, our products, they're high-performing synthetic fuels made from renewable resources with a net zero carbon footprint potential. They also do other things like eliminate sulfur, nitrogen, and particulates, which cause cancer. So those are all things that it does just by how we do it. So it isn't a question of can it be done, absolutely unequivocally. And because the traction we're getting in the marketplace, I'd say we even can do it economically, given you know the way that the world is working and the value of uh, these fuels along with its carbon value. So we can do it. Now, how do we get the message out that we're thinking about whole gallons of fuel, not partial gallons of fuel. When people say biofuels, they go, oh, E10, 10%. Well, you know what, okay, good. Go for the ten percent. In fact, go get fifteen or twenty. What? Go okay. go for it. I'm what doing are you talking about? Is mixing the mixing in a gallon? I yeah. fill
2: up my car at the tank. 10,
1: 20 percent of that
2: is ethanol. is ethanol. And
1: I'm doing the other part, the other ninety percent of hydrocarbon fuel. It's just gasoline, you know. And so our our products have been being used for F1 racing in Europe right now, uh, for gasoline. And when our jet fuel, it's jet fuel. Fighters like it. It has higher energy per gallon than a petrochemical-based fuel. So the fighter jets, it's good for them. You know, so it's a different game to play about what's technically possible. Super high-performing fuels.
2: 100% clean-burning jet fuel may be a thing. The science may be perfect. But with cheap oil at the ready at 50 or $60 a barrel, there also has to be the political will to change. And that's where Vera Pardee's crusade in the courts for the last decade comes in. She sued in federal court for an official endangerment finding under the Clean Air Act, for a binding decision that, yes, the carbon emissions produced by jet fuel is harming humans. That shouldn't take long, right? The late Justice Cordozo once said Justice is not to be taken by storm, she is to be wooed by slow advances. It took four years and two lawsuits for the courts to admit jet fuel was harming humans. Slow advances indeed. But Pardee's victory means the EPA must now set a standard to address the harm. But it will be the Trump EPA setting the standard. And Pardee is not optimistic. The United States and the EU have taken some pretty different approaches to this problem, haven't they?
0: Yes. um, So there's actually sort of three... Uh, entities that are, that are at play. One is the United States, which is by far, in a way, the largest emitter of aircraft-generated greenhouse gases by far. And the next one is the uh, European Union. And then the last one is a pretty unknown agency of the United Nations called the International... It's called ICAO, International Civil Aviation Organization, so ICAO for short. The US doesn't regulate greenhouse gas emissions from aircraft at all at present, despite the litigation that I and my colleagues have, have done. Now, Europe has taken a step which is helpful but also insufficient. Europe has what is called an emissions trading system. And that looks at specific industries that have been selected and their uh, greenhouse gas emissions and then compels them to put those emissions on the market and trade them between industries for a certain price. Now, the price is still laughably low, but again, it's, it's better than nothing. And the EU's trading system also sets no standards. So if you're an industry, you can just keep emitting, yes, there'll be a small price to pay, but there's no ceiling, so the EU doesn't have that either. All right, so now the last organization that I talked about, this small, unknown agency of the United Nations called ICAO. So in 2016, um, ICAO set the world's first greenhouse gas standards for aircraft, That was really a monumental thing from the perspective of principle. But the practical effect was neither monumental nor anything really to crow about. In fact, the standards that were set for only certain aircraft, not all of them, were 10 to 12 years behind what the airlines and the industry already plans to do. So what I'm trying to say here is yes they are standards but they really do nothing standards they don't even fill the role of a backstop you know to prevent backsliding because they're so far behind the reality of what the airlines can do with existing technology if they want to and what the standards require um so <laughs> i'm i'm cheered by the fact that we have the first energy in the world to set standards, but saddened by the fact that they do nothing. The
1: fastest sign is on. Once the captain feels it's safe to he'll turn that sign off. These things, you know, when you look at our competition, the competition is the oil industry in its fuels, the fossil-based stuff. It's fully depreciated assets. It's cheap oil. One way to think of it is that it's been a subsidy that's applied to the oil industry. It's in a kind of an invisible subsidy in some ways. It definitely has an impact to us and a potential impact, certainly. So how do you value that and and then use that same value and apply it to renewables? Well, the low carbon fuel standard uh, laws in California are an example of something that does work. Where here it is that Companies who produce or and sell oil-based products, fuels, are held accountable for their carbon emissions. They have to do something to reduce them. They, California did uh, uses a model that they call GREET 3.0. It's a model that allows anyone to come in and say, well, if I make these improvements in my technology, I can reduce my carbon footprint. And then there's a value for each point of reduction of the carbon footprint. And it can add up to real money. Well, that helps to offset the increase of cost of making these new products. So policies like that work. But we need other ideas for new policies. The, get, the, the truth is products like ours are about 2x what it costs to make uh, or from, a, from a fossil-based product when it's $50 or $60 oil. You know what that means, though? When it's $100 oil, we don't need carbon value in so much. So that's it's. We're not that far off economically on any of these things, and which is why we're starting to get traction in the marketplace. So we should have
2: the freedom to to travel. Um, we should have the responsibility to travel um, in a way that uh, has the least carbon footprint. And if we if we have the policies and, the, and we follow the science. Um, we can do that. And uh, Delta's uh, working with you on
1: this, right? Delta is. Delta just signed a 10 million gallon a year contract with us. Uh, that's a big deal. I think it's probably the biggest one for sustainable aviation fuels. Delta is a sophisticated airline. They have a refinery themselves. And so it's a starting point with them. And, uh, when and is the Delta going to use this all in one at one? hub or we haven't decided yet with them. Okay. Uh, and you know, right now the most economic benefit is out in California. So that would be the target zone, but I think it'll change, but it takes us a couple years to build a plant probably by 2023 we'll have a plant, but maybe, maybe it's Minneapolis, St. Paul, you know, maybe the policies have changed. Um, but it's SAS, Scandinavian Air Systems, and then we have Air Total. You know, France just passed a uh, legislation that says that they will be doing, as a mandate, sustainable aviation fuel. And so that's a good thing for us And uh, with Air Total. And we have AvFuels, which is doing corporate aviation. I think you'll see some other large corporations adopt our fuel uh, in the future here. And it's going to be interesting because, you know, we're talking about products that haven't been available before. Now they're becoming available. And people are going, what? You can do that, really? Let's try it and get on with it.
2: Well, you know, people talk about whether or not our policymakers are going to follow the science, and science can have a – some people love science, and some people are skeptical about science. I think that skepticism comes from a, a, a well-placed concern about unintended consequences, which has come from scientific discoveries and, and, and applications of it. But if you follow – if you really follow the science, that means you follow not only the the chemical science and the physics science and the biotechnology science, but you follow the environmental environmental science, and you follow the social science that has to do with how this, these changes in, uh, impact people and their families, if you, if you do all of that, uh, I think we can get there. And I think we can have a planet that uh, is inhabitable for our, our kids and their kids, and one still in which we still can enjoy a high standard of living and the right to travel and everything else. So uh, again, thank you for everything you're doing. We wish you well, and we will watch your future.
1: Thanks very much. I appreciate being here. I share your vision. I want to have... I think that everybody in the world ought to have a better standard of living. Ladies and gentlemen, as we start our descent, please make sure your seat backs and tray tables are in their full upright position. Make sure your seatbelt is securely secure.
2: So the bad news is, our climate is changing, and it's changing rapidly. And much of that change has been brought about by greenhouse gases that come directly from transportation... The good news is, people like Pat Gruber are developing scientific solutions. People like Vera Pardee are in courts fighting to make sure that those solutions become the law of the land. Actual gasoline with no carbon footprint, who knew that was possible? And who knew it was possible to make it from stuff like molasses, rice straw, and forest slash? It's another biotech miracle. All that's missing is the political will to put a price on carbon and create a market demand. We can see the future. It's right in front of us. Well, that's all for today. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast player, or even better, if you enjoyed what you heard, subscribe and share with your friends. Our next episode will focus on the drug pricing debate that somehow raged for three years with politicians and their constituents talking about two totally different prices. Why are politicians focused on government drug costs instead of what patients pay at the pharmacy counter? Washington is trying our patients. On the next I Am Bio.